0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. I am your host, Rob Stennett, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what is up?
1: How is it going, Rob? Excited to be here. Excited that you are all listening on wherever you are, driving in your car or, you know, uh, ignoring work that maybe you're supposed to be doing and listening to this podcast instead. Love that. Uh, if you want to also continue to ignore whatever you are supposed to be doing right now and maybe rate uh, or review this, uh, that helps out a lot. We're a, a new podcast and uh, it helps get the word out into the ether. If you just drop a little review and, uh, you know, say how much you love the meaning of the movie.
0: Yeah. So please do that. Review it wherever you're Spotify, Apple podcasts, wherever you're listening. Review the podcast and subscribe uh, lets you know when a new episode's coming. And we're going to try to have an episode every other week. As we're launching this podcast. And today, Andrew, we are talking about Don't Look
1: Up. Don't Look Up.
0: And so if you don't know what Don't Look Up is, you should stop this right now. Go watch the movie. It's a Netflix movie with more star power than you can possibly imagine. It's got Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Blanchett, you know, just A-list stars going all the way through. And I saw this movie over Christmas and I texted you and I was like, Andrew, we have to talk about this. And I said, have you seen the movie? And you said, no. And I said, Andrew, you need to watch this movie. So here's my question. You went and watched the movie. How did you feel watching this movie or after you'd seen this movie? Sort
1: of in shock. Uh, I felt like someone finally understood how crazy reality was and made a movie about it. And I Dude, felt- absolutely. I felt so seen and like understood. It was very odd to watch such a depressing movie and feel so good about it.
0: Yeah, I think that was my experience as well, and why I wanted you to watch it, because I had these two simultaneous feelings. One was sick to my stomach at watching the reality of what these characters were going through, and then two, I felt this relief of like, oh, that's what I've felt. Like, this movie encapsulates what the reality that I feel
1: like I've been walking in in the last couple of years. You know what I mean? Totally. I feel like, you know how like, you're like, driving down the road. Well, this is in L.A. They'll have like billboards for movies and stuff. And it'll be like a quote from some review is like real big on the on like the billboard or whatever. I feel like the big quote that should be next to this movie and all the ads is never has hopelessness felt so cathartic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Um, I mean, it was the strangest feeling of feeling like, yes, this feels so hopeless and I feel so good about that. Finally, it's like a relief. To actually see what I feel like I've been feeling spelled out so wonderfully.
0: What's so interesting for me is like friends on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like kind of my social circles where I run with people. People were talking about this movie and like loving it. But when I walked into starting the movie, I kind of had a wallop because the critic reviews were savage. I mean, they were just it's got a 55 percent on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, but the Which reviews is were much worse. Which is which is really bad, especially when you're considering a director like McKay, this A-list cast. It's pretty savage reviews. But then reading the reviews, I clicked on them after the movie was over and I was like, oh, they're lambasting this movie. Absolutely. Um, And that was surprising to me. Did you know the reviews
1: going into it or when did you kind of see? You had mentioned them to me and I read one and it was so bad that I was like, I don't want this in my head when I watched the movie. So I'd only read one before I went in, but like it was calling it like a bomb. Like I thought it was going to be something that was just an absolute train wreck. Like, you know, when you get a star set cast and make like justice league and then it's just the worst movie you've ever seen. I thought it was going to be just something that fell on its face and it doesn't. Like, I don't quite understand the vitriol in the Critic Review. Justice League is a great
0: example of like, oh yeah, this is going to be so great, and then it just completely falls apart. I almost expected it to be Cats. I almost expected it to be like, oh, (laughs) this is just so tone deaf, so out of there. And so I think that for my first viewing, I was actually like, ready to hate watch it, and then I watched it and I was like, oh no, I actually think this is good. And then I watched it again, and I'm like, oh no, I think this is great. Now, maybe a year down the line, I'll listen to this podcast, and I'll be so embarrassed that I stood behind this movie, but as of the beginning of 2022, I'm here to tell you that I'm on Team Don't Look Up. Mr. McKay, if you're listening to me, I think you made a really great movie that people are missing the point of or not getting what it is.
1: I think so, too. Based on his, like, body of work that he's been building, to me, this is his Bohemian Rhapsody. It feels like the magnum opus of, like, him using all of the tools in his toolbox to make something really dense and really complex while telling a pretty straightforward story like he hasn't in a little while. But it is layered beyond belief.
0: Yeah, I, I do think it demands multiple watches. But I think what's so interesting about this movie is how it's received. I actually made a list of tomato meter reviews that are better than Don't Look Up. You ready for my list? So
1: this is movies that are out right now that have better tomato scores than Don't Look Up? Yes. All right. Let's they are go. out in theaters
0: or freshly streaming and better tomato scores. Here's my list. Sing 2, Matrix (laughs) Resurrection. House Mm -hmm. of Gucci Mm -hmm. Venom. Let there be carnage. Oh, man. Paw Patrol, the movie (laughs) Clifford, the big red dog, American Underdog, Ghostbusters Afterlife. That whole list of movies critics are telling me like and I get tomato scores aren't everything and they're a little bit nuanced. But what is a fact is every movie that I just listed has a better score than don't look up.
1: And that's insane to me. You don't expect something that's led by Meryl Streep and Leonardo DiCaprio to have a worse tomato score than Clifford the Big Red Dog. Right,
0: or Paw Patrol the movie, I'm like... (laughs) So, I'm so fascinated with this conversation of why this movie is so hated that I went and read through all the reviews and I picked four big critiques about this movie that the reviewers had. And I want to kind of take those critiques one by one. And Andrew, I want you and I, lowly podcasters, to take on all the critics of America on... Of their critiques versus our take on it. Okay. All right. You up for that? I think I am. So here we go. Number one is it's too on the nose, kind of bad satire, or even it's just not funny. So is this movie bad satire,
1: Andrew? No. It's, I mean, the answer to that question is, is no. Um, a satire is making fun of something by taking it and elevating it. So like Jonathan Swift thing where, you know, he talks about like eating babies, right? Like it's taking the idea of capitalism and elevating it or uh, Dr. Strangelove, right? Yep. It takes the idea of the fear of someone that might be a little bit incompetent or a little bit crazy accidentally setting off a nuclear war and fills the room with several people that are like bumbling idiots, Right. But it's still about the thing. It's still dead on. And I think this movie does that. The problem is there are so many examples in society today of people that are so absurd. The news is so absurd nowadays that trying to make a comedy about it is just reflecting the news. So it feels like real life. It doesn't feel elevated. It feels like you're watching something that's real because that's what the daily news feels like right now.
0: Yeah, part of the criticism I've seen is people calling it like, oh, it's almost like it's a documentary or something like that. But I think that's a little cheap because I watched it and I was like, "This is doing something really smart." What it does is one it's leaning into a very specific movie genre, which is this is Armageddon, Deep Impact, uh, twenty twelve, uh, Day After Tomorrow, all these kind yeah, of apocalyptic it's,
1: it's, into the world movies, right? Right. It's any movie Roland Emmerich has ever yes. made. Yes, <laughs> it's
0: our it's our boy, which
1: <laughs> which are almost satires in and of itself.
0: <laughs> right. Which,
1: to be fair. Independence Day is a masterpiece.
0: <laughs> I I mean I ride with Independence Day, but yeah, it's it's very much like I love the first five minutes in this movie because it starts off just like a Roland Emmerich movie where Jennifer Lawrence is there, Holy. she's with the massive telescope in a science lab, kind of doing something, and then she has the aha discovery right there, and it's played for zero laughs. It's totally serious. It's totally straight. And then after this epic scene, what there is is a Jack Handy quote. And if you don't know who Jack Handy is, he's kind of the Saturday Night Live like inspirational quote guy of things that are just funny and absurd. And so to have this really serious scene followed by a Jack Handy quote lets you know like this is the world that we're entering into. And that's the tone of the whole movie, which is like one scene is going to be really serious and heavy. And then the next scene is going to be completely comic and absurd. And that's kind of the playbook of the whole way through. And I think he sets out the promise of what that is early on and he executes it all the way through the
1: movie. I agree. It's it's not just that every scene is heavy. It's like, I would say that that first scene just feels real. It feels like the beginning of a normal sci-fi action movie where you're meeting your cast of lovable characters. You've got the, you know, your Jeff Goldblumy scientist professor, in this case, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, right? That's like sort of the underdog. Like, you're just meeting all these lovable characters, and then suddenly they get thrust into the limelight and have to go meet the president that normally would be played by Morgan Freeman and would be a great person. And then the movie takes a left turn, right? It feels like we're off to the races on something that we're going to like know and love. And then it hits you with that Jack Handy quote and like undermines you, right? So it says, like, nope, like we're gonna, we're gonna undermine you in almost every turn. Here.
0: I think it's crazy. Like I've heard so many critics say this is bad satire, unlike Doctor Strange Love. Doctor Strange Love is universally loved as like maybe the greatest satire to ever be made. Right. And so I rewatched it and I was like, this movie has so much in common with it. Totally. And Doctor Strange was really on the nose as well. You mentioned it earlier, but like this is about military guys very much being incompetent with a bomb. There's a scene where the soldiers are there in like this Vietnam style foot war and right behind them is a sign that says peace is our profession. And so you see dudes like shooting each other, blowing stuff up, and it says peace is our profession. And it's like completely on the nose it's completely broad it's not subtle at all right and so that's why i'm like i don't get this criticism if you're going to leverage that criticism i'm like well then you should do the same thing about dr strangelove and say oh that movie's too broad so i don't know how dr strangelove can't be too broad and this
1: one is like it's it's confusing to me one of the things that dr strangelove does that don't look up does differently though i would say is that so many of the characters in Dr. Love, with a few exceptions, are actually normal people, and it's the situation that is absurd. And so it's a little bit easier to find a connection point with a lot of the characters in most scenes. There's only really a couple people in Dr. Love that are truly incompetent. Or yeah. bad. Right? The general that sets it off, and the George C. Scott character, who's kind of like a silly chauvinist. Yep. Right? But the satire is the situation. The fact that we're in a situation in which everyone doing their job the best can accidentally nuke the world. That's what the satire is. Like the president is trying to do the right thing. The people in the airplane are trying to do the right thing. Right. They're not maniacs. They're not stupid. One of them might be a little bit like of a hick, but like they're all just people trying to do their job. And it's the situation that is absurd that's triggered by a couple absurd people. Whereas Don't Look Up, you've got a few normal people surrounded by these absurd people that very troublingly feel like actual real-life allegories of people that we see every day in the news, in politics, in power. There are very few good guys in Don't Look Up, and I think that makes it hard to stomach if you feel attacked. Well, I
0: think what's so interesting about the climate today versus then, Dr. Strangelove actually begins with a card that says, hey... This actually can't really happen. This is fake, you know, because it feels so real, even though to us it's completely absurd. But today, um, I mean, I mentioned this to a friend, but like the last episode of Black Mirror was in 2019 because life feels like an episode of Black Mirror right now. It's like we can't even make right. new episodes because it's so crazy. We're Saturday so on the Pale. Right. Saturday Night Live writers talk about like it's so hard to do a Sean Spicer press conference joke because Sean Spicer press conferences feel like a Saturday night live routine. And so right. it's like, it's, it's so much harder to make satire these days. Like, I don't know when the last good satire was. And by the way, you know what my favorite kind of movie is a satire. And as I was watching this, I think part of the reason I loved it so much is because I was like, Oh, my soul is parched for a really good satire. They come out so infrequently where I'm like, I, yeah. I don't know when the last good one was. Um, Maybe Sorry to Bother You, which is a great film, Um, but they're they're few and far between. And I I think I love movies like Network. I love movies like Election, Fight Club, these movies that are very satirical. And so I'm
1: just like, maybe they don't come out that often, which is why we're not used to them. Because real life feels like a satire. It's hard to write something that is elevated because the things you're trying to satirize are so absurd in real life right now. And yet
0: we both said we felt relief watching this movie and we're not the only ones because it was like, oh, wait, I felt like, oh, I'm not crazy because what we're walking through right now is crazy. And this movie holds a mirror up to it in a way that good art should. So let's go to let's go to our next criticism, which is this. Critics are saying it's too mean spirited. Is this movie too mean spirited, Andrew?
1: Well, I don't think it's too mean spirited. I think it's sharp. I think it's punching, for sure. It's not pulling punches. But I think all of the hits are fair. So is it mean? Yes. Is it too mean? I don't think so. What do you think? I mean, I agree.
0: I think, like, okay, so I wrote down a list of who all was being satirized in this movie. Big business, big tech leaders, political figures, media outlets, and I'm talking major media outlets, CNN, New York Times, uh, Kelly and Ryan, Good Morning America-type morning shows, pop stars social media influencers, like that's who the bullseye is. And so I thought, I feel like that those are fair subjects. A lot of times when you hear satire, you hear you punch up. And I feel like if we can't punch up at big business or pop stars or social media influencers or CNN, I don't know what we punch up at. And so I felt like the
1: subject for it was fair enough. I agree too. I mean, this really is punching up. It's punching up at a lot of people, though. It's that whole list you said. And then I think in the second act, when it gets into the like the actual don't look up, right, where like, half the population is like, don't look up. The other half is like, just look up. I do think it turns, and it's not taking on maybe people in power anymore, but it, there is a turn in the movie where it's showing the complicity of the population of all of us through, through social media and through our like tribalism but it's not picking one tribe over the other. Like the just look up group feels equally as complicit. They take something that Jennifer Lawrence's character is trying to do to just like create sanity. She says, just look up. And then it becomes a hashtag that then gets a don't look up hashtag to fight it. And it shows the complicity of all of us. So in that case, I guess it's punching down at the entire population. But to me, it was like, it was fair. It was showing how all of us are complicit in this absurdity that we've created as a society.
0: I think what was really interesting is whenever there's lots of people on stage or big screens or that sort of stuff, it felt like it was satirizing. But then when people are in restaurants, like there's that scene where everyone's in the restaurant and people are going up to Jennifer Lawrence and they're like, please just tell us like you see the the humanizing of people in their everyday. And so I think there's a big difference in this movie's talking about it. And man, I have found this so true. There's a big difference of people when they're behind a screen and people when they're in front of your face. And this movie is very interested in that difference
1: and tells that story really well. And I think that's the thing that a lot of reviewers, going back to the whole reviewer thing, I think that's the thing that I think a lot of these reviews are missing is it's getting hung up on like the issues or like... You know, how it's maybe satirizing an administration of the government, or how it's satirizing, how we handle climate change, Which it is. It absolutely is. It's not not doing that. But I think the thing that is so on this movie's mind that I haven't heard people talk about, is what you just said, this idea of how we undermine social communication completely so that our human connection is completely severed to the point where we'll allow an asteroid to destroy the planet willingly because we can't talk to one another. And that, to me, is the central heart of the movie that comes out more and more and ends up being the final scene, really in its bleakness, but is about this family ignoring what's happening in the world to just be together. And I think that's what the movie actually has in its heart as maybe, you know, what Adam McCasey's as the solution to the absurdity in our society right
0: now. Yeah, I think one thing really interesting about this movie is it was written before COVID. And so it was... It was produced during COVID, but the kind of script and story idea. I wonder what I would think of this movie if it came out in 2019. You know, like, would I have as strong of a positive reaction? Because I honestly think, like, yes, it is a climate change movie, but you could insert any topic. You could insert COVID. You could insert, you know, racial discourse. You could insert economic discourse, like, so many things. And the way that, like, one big hot-button issue all of a sudden splits us up into each sides. Everyone goes to their talking points. Social media comes after it. And it's just this almost predictable play of how we all attack each other and this kind of ideological civil war we're in. And so I think that's what makes it so powerful to me is I'm like, no, this is bigger than a climate change movie. This is a movie about our breakdown as being able to communicate with each other as humans,
1: as family members, as a society. Like it just encapsulates it so well and I think that's what hit me on the second watch is how many of the characters that at first watch you sort of go oh this is a an analog to good morning America or okay we're making fun of this show but how the characters in these situations whether it's the tech billionaire or whatever so much of it is about are they able to relate to people or not can they have intimate human connection that's what it like so many of the characters is at their character flaw of their like caricature has to do with that. And that really hit me on a second one.
0: I totally agree. Okay. Here's my third one that I've kind of distilled, which is reason number three critics hate this movie is because it's poorly executed. Bad editing is a big one that comes up bad writing. I've heard lots of people say the ideas were really good, but the filmmaking just wasn't good. Is that true? Andrew, is this a poorly made film?
1: I I want to agree with one of these just so that I don't sound pretentious But, like, no, I think it's really well made. Like, this is the one that blows my mind the most with critics is because I can see the general population being thrown off by the way it's edited, by the way it's constructed, because similar to, like, Adam McKay's other movies where he's a little bit out on a limb, like Big Short, he does this where he kind of, like, he changes up the playbook of how you're used to watching a movie. And he certainly does that in this. He's using his own rules for how he's editing, for how he's going between scenes. Um, but that's something that critics normally like. They see it as innovative. They see the storytelling tools. They see through the, what the population normally misses. So it blows my mind that the critics see this as bad editing because I think all of the choices that are strange are on purpose and are really effective both for keeping you emotionally with the characters and for moving the story through exposition that would otherwise be really clunky. I think it's like a, almost a masterclass on how to do something fun and innovative.
0: Yeah, one of the r- critics that I saw said it was kind of like he just found a bunch of stock footage and just cut it throughout the movie. He just, there's kind of like these stock footage inserts. And I, like, I, like, you know, I can see that criticism of like, oh, all of a sudden we're in a Kaiser Permanente ad and this was supposed to be a like serious epic movie. But I found that footage that it would cut away to really effective because it kept showing like one animals who are innocent in all of this. And it was just a reminder Mm -hmm. as you saw like these beautiful kind of nature shots. And then two, it showed prayer at the temple. It showed people eating food. There's this scene where a baby is just taking a bath that almost made me cry because it was just like, Oh, there's so much innocence of just life that's happening. That's being destroyed by this discourse. And the life is just trying to go on and it's innocent. And so I found all of that kind of like quote unquote stock footage cutting to be, I can see where that criticism is coming from if there wasn't a reason, but I found it to be motivated. I found it to be really interesting
1: that it keeps reminding us like what's at stake. Almost every time it does it, even those little cutaways will sometimes have like a narrative of themselves. Right. I, I have a couple
0: other moments where the editing was awesome just to praise it. Okay. So I'm going to go all in. One is there's this moment where they're, where they're first kind of pitching the idea to president Orleans. So it's like Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, and they're in the room with Jonah Hill and Meryl Streep. What's so interesting in that scene is they're cutting away to, like, weird close-ups of the neck, weird close-ups of wrists, weird close-ups of foreheads. Like, the cutting is really, really strange. But what I felt when I was watching it is if you've ever been in a meeting, like, a really important business meeting or an important job interview, and you're just picking up on weird—someone scratching their arm and weird little details— like, I thought that's what this movie was doing in that moment was it was you felt the pressure of them trying to get this idea out so much that they just did all these manic quick cuts to let them know like the editing actually let us know what Leo and what Jen were feeling in that scene.
1: Right. It makes you uncomfortable because you're not watching the scene like you would normally watch a scene, but that's how Leo feels. So it's like putting you in his shoes. There's another moment where it did the weird like cutaway to something random where Jennifer Lawrence is like screaming about something. She's like trying to get someone to understand and she's like mid scream and it cuts away to like a shot of like the moon eclipsing the earth or something like it's some crazy solar system shot. And immediately the feeling of that is how like monstrously indifferent the universe is to the presence of man, right? Like this is the biggest thing in the world, to Jennifer Lawrence, right? Or her character, she's screaming about it and then to cut to out in space and it's like, nothing she's saying, Matt. Like, there's an asteroid coming. There's just silence, right? Like, the universe is vast, and you screaming affects nothing. And, like, the feeling of that, of the hopelessness of her trying to care about something and how vast the universe is. They did it without anyone having to say that on screen. They did it with a cut, with an edit. And I was like, this is great filmmaking. This is using all of the tools. I don't know why a film critic, every film critic seems like, can't see that.
0: In space, no one hears you scream. Even J-Law.
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, I, I, I just thought, like, these are really creative choices. Are they unconventional? Sure. But the, I, I found them to be so interesting. And again, ultimately, like, what is criticism other than how does it make you feel? And so I can't tell someone else how to feel, but I'm just here kind of pounding the pavement saying, I thought the choice is had a lot of smart decision making behind them. And some thought. An- another moment that comes to mind is actually when they're filming on the cell phone, like a little girl who's saying the Lord's Prayer, and then you cut to the spaceships that are like huge and getting ready to launch. And you have this like.
1: Yeah, it feels like a Michael Bay show. Exactly. Like, like the helicopters up there. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's from Armageddon or Pearl Harbor. Exactly.
0: So it's going full Michael Bay, but two frames before it are something that you would watch on TikTok or, you know, whatever else. It was just so small and intimate. And there were just all sorts of, like, juxtapositions like that that really worked for me. Okay, so we're both on the team that this is not poorly executed. It's good.
1: Yeah, it's hitting in all the places it wants to.
0: Number four is it's too preachy and the message won't resonate. And those are kind of two different things. It's too preachy, meaning the movie's message is preaching right at you. And then the other criticism on top of that has been, like, this movie's not going to affect climate change. Like, it's not going to move the needle on it. It's not really going to change anything. So why are we even making this story? What do you have to those criticisms, Andrew?
1: Well, is this movie too preachy? (laughs) It's the same answer I have to, is it too mean? Like, is it preachy? Yes. Is it too preachy? No. I think it's saying exactly what it wants to say. And will it affect anyone's view on climate change? No. But the thing I think that people are, like, missing, and I think it's because everyone's already made up their mind, which I think it's what the movie is saying. It's sad that we're there. And that's what it's satirizing. It's not satirizing the idea of climate change. It's satirizing society's current view of the whole thing. And I think they use the climate change satire as an avenue into a social satire that hits about a half dozen other things that I actually do think that message might resonate if people look past the obvious COVID climate change allegory.
0: So this is one of the ones that I'm going to say is too preachy for me is the idea of actually what's happened after the movie. I've read interviews with Adam McKay seen like Leonardo DiCaprio at screenings and they're like, Hey, this is what the movie means. It means X, Y, and Z. When they talk about what the movie means, I actually do feel yeah. myself being preached at more. And I feel my eyes like kind of rolling, like, okay, whatever. I would much rather just say, Hey, we made a movie, watch it for yourself. And what do you think? Like give room for the viewer right to bring some interpretations like you guys worked really hard to make your movie. Now let audiences and everyone else debate when they're saying, Hey, this is what this means. And if you don't like this, you're not going to get it. Those kind of things are off
1: putting to me. And so that
0: like the conversation around the movie, I feel more preachy
1: than the movie itself. I think that's true. Now I also don't envy having to do a massive press tour that you have to contractually do because this movie costs like, 100 million dollars so you have to go do a press tour for netflix in order for people to go watch it right you make a movie that is clearly about something and have to answer an hour worth of questions it would be hard not to start saying those things right like what else are you going to say like I had fun with Meryl Streep. Like, maybe. But, like, I do think it would be it would be difficult, especially if you're someone like Leonardo DiCaprio who spent the last 20 years actually really caring about this stuff. He now made a satire about it. It would be really difficult not to start doing that. That doesn't make it any less off-putting. But, like, if you're going to do a press tour, like, kind of, what else are you going to talk about?
0: Yeah, and I, and I can see that. But I think that the movie being so strong message with people talking about it afterwards, it's like, okay, I'm eating right. cheesecake. Like, this is too rich, it's too much, like it's kind of turning me off. Right.
1: I would like to hear other people have maybe that conversation, but not Leo and uh, Adam McKay. Like I don't need the the makers of it saying it at me. You've already said it in your movie.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, like I remember when the Sopranos ended and it kind of has this famous controversial ending. Yeah. And everyone tried to pin David Chase down and they're like, What is this ending about? What does it mean? He's like, What do you think it means? Right. And he kept kind of turning it back to the viewers. And I just think it's a more interesting way to handle it. Right. He got asked the question a hundred times, every talk show, every Vanity Fair article, but he always put it back to the viewers. And I do wish they would do that because this movie does have a strong message. But I think the more that we get to interact with it and like put our own meaning into it, the less preachy it becomes.
1: Because at the end of the day, I feel like the heart of this movie is about people connecting and talking and not just getting all of their stuff from someone on a screen. So like, yeah, maybe that would have been nice.
0: (laughs) The one criticism that's crazy to me is that this movie is not going to end climate change. And that feels like such a weird way to criticize a movie. Like, would we criticize Do the Right Thing because it doesn't end racism? Would you criticize, you know, a political election movie because it doesn't fix politics? Like, if you critique something, do you have to fix that thing as well? Or
1: like really, quote unquote, move the needle? That makes no sense to me at all. It's a bad critique because that's not what a satire is for. A a satire is to make people talk, and over time that can change things, right? Dr. Strangelove didn't end the Cold War. Right. Like, the Cold War ended 30 years later, and we still have a nuclear arsenal that is still, if you read articles, troublingly mishandled. Yeah, this
0: is not a movie's job, and I don't understand anything of, like, the movie has to fix it. It's like, no. A movie or a story makes us think about it, makes us wrestle through it, it makes us have conversations like this, but did it move the needle is a asinine metric to judge any film by. Like, that's ridiculous.
1: And I think when a society starts talking about something more and more, then you see a needle being moved. But it's an integrated thing, right? Like, Dr. Strangelove didn't end the Cold War, but, like, it was part of a conversation that eventually led to people entering politics that had different priorities, yada, 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 as well as dozens and hundreds of other things and other news stories and other TV shows, right? When you hit a certain amount of weight on something, then society changes. And this is one piece of hay in the haystack. And so, yeah, to... Will this change the whole course of whatever it's talking about? Of course not. But that doesn't make it any less worth doing. Absolutely not. So those are our kind of big
0: rebuttals to the four things that critics say. But one thing we like to do on this podcast as well is talk about a few categories. So I want to jump into these categories, Andrew, starting with this. What's the most meaningful scene? Like what scene do you really stood out as most meaningful?
1: Well, I think there's a couple really obvious, super meaningful scenes like Leo's outburst in the middle or um, maybe like the, the, the end around the dinner table. There's some kind of big ones that like the, the movie certainly is packing a lot of meaning around. I think there's a lot of conversation to be had about those. But I think my most meaningful scene that jumped out to me on the second watch was, weirdly enough, the scene where Leo's character and Cate Blanchett's character are in bed together and they're talking about whether or not they actually know one another when I first watched the movie, their whole affair plotline was actually, like, my least favorite part. And I was anticipating making this my, like, least meaningful scene or least meaningful character was that plot line. And then on a second watch, that scene struck me so hard as they were talking about whether or not they knew each other and the two of their expectations about what that meant. And so Kate Blanchett's character begrudgingly says, like, Okay, fine, let's get to know each other, let's talk about something that has meaning and she lists off a bunch of things about herself. And everything she says reads like a social media profile, right? Yeah, it felt like a LinkedIn profile almost like this is right. These yeah. are all my accomplishments, and honestly, all of them are pretty interesting. She says she speaks a certain number of languages. She's like slept with multiple ex-presidents. It's like all interesting party conversations. Like, oh, this is all interesting stuff, but none of it is intimate stuff. That's not the kind of thing that actually helps you get to know someone. Well, and it felt like a speech she had given before, right? Like, how many beds has she laid in, and given this same
0: speech yeah. to some other guy?
1: I actually thought watching it. right. And then Leo goes, okay, and then he lists, like, his things, of like, these are things about me to get to know me. And all of his stuff is, like, not nearly as cool. It's not nearly as important. And some of it, honestly, is a little bit awkward. Like, he was talking about, like, how his family dog just died recently and how he cried a lot. And I was like, oh, bro, like, that's not going to win you any points. That's not... And then what I realized was I, as the viewer, was emotionally more interested in Kate Blanchett's list of random factoids than Leo's character's intimate details about what was in his heart and who he was as a person, and that that's the problem. That my emotional reaction to that scene, and it was just for, like, a moment, because obviously, like, Leo's the hero in the scene, right? I was tracking with what he was doing. But, like, that my emotional reaction to, oh, that's awkward, that's too intimate, that's too personal, no one wants to hear that about you, right? Say something fun, say something clever. Is The problem I had that same thought I was like okay why are yeah. you not doing this and I actually had
0: the thought and we haven't even talked about the performances in this movie which are incredible but I actually thought like there is no way Leonardo DiCaprio could get Kate Blanchett and that's what like <laughs> and then I remember thinking like how is that an actual thought crossing my head but I remember thinking like oh he's gonna mess it up with her and then I thought no why am I rooting for this relationship to work And why am I rooting for him to not embarrass himself? And actually what he's saying is not embarrassing. And so I felt myself taken in by the same kind of drugs he was, which was their approval and her beauty. And then feeling disgusted that like, oh, that stuff actually matters to me as a viewer And what does that say about me? So I think that's a great choice for a meaningful scene.
1: It again blows my mind that this wasn't written after COVID because I felt like his whole thing about him being kind of like a normal looking dude, but like referred to as like the hot scientist. I was like, this is an Anthony Fauci thing. right? Like this is, they are, this is fully talking about Tony Fauci. And I was like, oh no, this was written before anyone even knew who Dr. Fauci was. And that's crazy to me that like they created a Dr. Fauci analog in the script. Prior to COVID ever happening, and us as a society, like, you know, canonizing Dr. Fauci. To be clear, I think Dr. Fauci is great, but like, that's what happened, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's amazing, kind of this
0: idea, this scientist who no one knew about, who all of a sudden became this central voice and face for something. Yeah. Like, that was Leo. Well, my most meaningful scene, a couple of them that come to mind, one real quick throwaway one is after. Jennifer Lawrence's character goes, and she gets fired from her job. She goes and backs to her family's house, and they open the door. Oh, yeah. And there's just this moment where they open the door, and her parents are both standing there, like, blocking the door. And they're like, hey, um, we're for all the jobs the Comet is going to create. So don't bring any of your (laughs) anti-Comet stuff in here. And it's just so heartbreaking that her parents, before she even says hi, before they say, hey, are you okay, honey? Just, boom, go straight to the talking points, right to it. And you can see her spirit just deflate of even my own parents yeah. are against me
1: yeah and like again that felt like that should have been like this really for like we're for the jobs that the comet is going to create should have been this really elevated super satirical moment where you as viewer would be like that would never happen and watching that scene i was like oh my gosh like i this feels like families that i know about about covid right like oh like we want to wear masks at Thanksgiving, but we believe that wearing a mask is anti-freedom. And so like people aren't eating Thanksgiving together, right? Oh, like this feels real. Like this feels, I've seen this conversation. Yeah. That instant divide was
0: so smart. My other moment that really like encapsulated the meaning of the movie is you mentioned it earlier, but there's this scene where all of a sudden Leo realizes like, okay, there's a plan that's not going to work and we're going to all die. And he gets on the like, I forget what the morning show's called, but it's called, like, The Daily Rip. I think The Daily Rip. <laughs> incredible <laughs> fake title for a news show, by the way. And so he gets in The Daily Rip kind of to do his little segment, and this is another great editing where they're kind of, like, editing him going, putting on his makeup and then cutting back and forth, and you see this tension building in him. And finally he has this, like, Howard Beale from Network type of, like, on-camera meltdown, and he totally melts down. But what's so incredible is he says, like, He looks at, you know, Tyler Perry, who's awesome, by the way, in this movie, and he says, you know what? He does a great job. We don't always have to be clever or smart or funny. Sometimes we just need to be able to say things to each other. And that whole speech about that idea was so resonant to me of like, we don't know how to communicate anymore because we only listen to each other. We listen to the person who packages it the best or who says it the most dramatic or the most funny. But we can't even like communicate with each other on a basic level anymore. And his heart cry for that, and then what he says in the end of the scene is like, I wanna go home is just so powerful. Yeah. To me, I'm like, that's the core. That's the meaning of the movie. Absolutely. Okay. So what about meaningful character? Who's your most meaningful character, Andrew? This
1: movie has like obviously a couple of like real people at the center. And then just a ton of impact characters around the side, all of which are like representative of something that McKay and company see as a problem. And the one that jumped out to me the most was uh, Mark Rylance's character, the Sir Peter Ishuel. Yeah. He reminded me as I was watching it more and more, he reminded me of a just slightly more elevated version of what Mark Zuckerberg will be like when he's 60. Of, like, these tech people like uh, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg who have incredible IQ, right? Really, really, really smart people. But their EQ is just not there, right? Their emotional ability to really connect with people is just not there. And that's not like a hit on them personally, but like factual, right? Like their ability to converse and relate. Yeah, I mean, you, you watch connect.
0: Mark Zuckerberg talk about meta universe, that sort of stuff, and it's just like, what is this guy talking about? And it feels like a robot in a lab. And I've actually heard a bunch of people criticize Mark Rylance's character of like, too weird, too bizarre. What was he doing with that performance? And I just, again, disagree. I'm like, this feels like a tech billionaire who kind of lives in his lab all day and then comes out and just says crazy stuff where you're like, what's happening? And
1: to me, he's like the obvious bad guy of the movie. I guess like Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill, like the administration is there. But like, Mark Rylance's guy is, like, the guy who's pulling all yeah, the strings. He's the puppet master. He's sort of the ultimate big bad guy, right? And his first scene, his very first line, when he walks out and does his, like, TED Talk or, like, you know, the equivalent of, like, an Apple pitch or Yeah, like the, the the Apple show. Yeah, whenever they, like, release a new iPhone, they do one of these, right? So he he's doing his equivalent of that. And his very first line of, of the movie is he looks out of the crowd and he says, Really, I see all my life's work has been driven by the inexpressible need for a friend who would understand and soothe me. And as soon as he says, inexpressible need for a friend, the camera cuts to the little girl who's standing right next to him, who looks up at him, like, in awe. And if you watch that little girl, who I think is a great performance, honestly. She's, like, I agree. got two lines in the movie, but gives an incredible performance, right? If you go back and watch that scene and just watch her through the whole scene, you see this little, like, tech nerd who idolizes this man, who is probably, like, a little him and just wants to connect and talk with him. And Mark Rylance's character gets up on stage and says, my whole life's work has been driven by an inexpressible need to find a friend, to find a person, and I haven't been able to do it, so now I've made this robot phone. And this girl tries to chime in during the presentation, he shuts her down, and then she goes backstage to him and says, like, hey, like, I love you. He's trying to connect with him backstage, and he cannot connect with her. Like, he is physically, emotionally unable to even register that the cutest girl on the planet is trying to connect with him. And this man who cannot connect with another human being is driving the world's population for connection and how we connect and is driving that conversation. To me, that's a very real thing that's happening in the world right now. And it was like, it hit me hard, all of his scenes and how he's trying to solve problems with things that are just, driving people apart
0: well and he even talks about how a lot of the work of bash or whatever else is so you never have to feel sad and in, right you feel like this drug drive the sad feelings
1: away forever
0: yeah he's this drug peddler and that's what big tech is you know and again i do think we're all complicit in it in some ways of like yeah we never want to feel sad and there's a great little line where there's a shot of the puppy kind of riding around the chicken and then he's like ah is that chicken too scary or is there a cuter bird it, you know, like, and I could totally oh, right. see market testing this happy clip of like, is it happy enough? Is it the right color? And like the thing that these marketing people do, or they're always like upping it to make it more and more happy. And I was just like, this is so
1: spot on. Well, even that line right there, he says, like, have we tested the chicken with like the prepubescent audience, I find it quite threatening. And that line comes literally after the little girl just said, I love you. And he's like, Hey, does this chicken scary to prepubescent people? There's a girl right next to you. Ask her. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> like any, he, and, he, and he's asking some data analyst. like even that kind of throwaway line about the chicken is like, poignant even in the joke to me that's why I'm like how can you not say this is well executed the layers on this are all there he
0: he has a couple of other really interesting scenes one scene that really stuck out to me is when they're he's finally given the pitch of how they're going to like mine the comet yeah for all of its things and so he talks about these machines that he's given and as he keeps talking about the machines he name drops like hey this laser was invented by this Nobel prize-winning scientist. And this guy with the best selling book came up with this rocket launcher, and everything is like name dropping as he's talking about why his plan's gonna work, why his science is the best science, you know? And so he's, but you right. can see he's just payrolled all these people to like sign off on his thing. And that's why they're yeah, doing he's it. building
1: the brand. Yes. He's like building up his brand. He's doing the thing that's flashy versus the thing that Leo starts to push in act two, which is is this peer reviewed? Which is not flashy. That is boring. Like in the in the very beginning of the movie, the um the doctor says like, hey, just make sure that you don't talk about math. And then Leo's like, how it's all yeah, he's math, like, it's all math. How do I not talk about <laughs> it's all math? How do I not Right? And so like Mark Violence is building up the brand versus doing the thing that actually matters, which is uh, you know, Right, and every single person in that, that room boring.
0: is sold except for the one scientist who's like Looks in horror like this is not going to work. Um, right. Meanwhile, while that scene's going on, just another way of like how this movie's so funny is they cut away from that scene and Jonah Hill has this line where he's like Leonardo's like oh can we do it and he's like well we could make a lot of money and and save the world yeah and everyone cheers and then you cut to Jennifer Lawrence who's sitting on the floor and she's like I just don't understand how this is possible and you think she's talking about the comet. But what you realize she's actually talking about is why the three star general charged her for snacks for snacks. And, <laughs> and it's such a funny bit that like goes through the whole movie. But I think what's so great about it is it's kind of what our brains do, which is when the big problem is so big and unsolvable. Sometimes we go through these stupid problems that are right in front of us.
1: Like why? Right.
0: <laughs> why a three general star general us for snacks when they're free?
1: So exactly, which is maybe the funniest joke in the whole movie is the snack joke.
0: It's beautiful. They, they even do it when she's laying uh, next to Timothy Chalamet and looking up at the stars. And you th- again, <laughs> right. you think they're having this meaningful conversation about the end of the world. And she's like, I've realized why he charges for the snacks. And like for her, like that's the mystery that she, like the comment makes total sense. But this snack thing is the thing she can't let go of.
1: It's super funny.
0: Um, my most meaningful character is actually, uh, I picked Dr. Oglethorpe, who is just th- oh this, um, yeah, he's just the, his name's Teddy in the movie, and I thought what he did was just grounds it in reality. It's really interesting because the first half of the movie, you're watching Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Dr. Mindy, and what's her name, Kate DiBiosky, you're watching them yeah. trying to convince the world this is going to happen, But Dr. Oglethorpe is kind of us. He's the one watching it on TV and watching how that big power couple gets back together and it's so amazing. And then they have to pitch how the comet's coming. Um, And so you just see Dr. Oglethorpe, he's there in the White House, and he's just the one who's watching these two try to convince the world of what to do and they can never quite do it. He's the one character in the movie who I think gets no laugh lines or anything else like that, but he's the steadying presence of like, trying to ground this in science and ground it in reality and even ground it in humanity. And so I just thought he was a really nice character. You mentioned how everyone's so crazy and manic, but he's just this normal guy who reminds us of, of like, no, there's real humans who are trying to figure this out and solve this problem.
1: It's interesting how there's only like a couple characters in the movie that aren't slightly absurd. And he is one. of them.
0: Yeah, I wrote down four. It was... You know, Dr. Mendy, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, it was Jennifer Lawrence's character, Kate Dbioski. it was uh, Dr. Oglethorpe, and then it was the wife of Mrs. Right. Mendy. Like, those are the four characters who are kind of, like, regular human beings, and then everyone else is a bit of a, like, kind of comic foil character or whatever
1: else, and so... Right, and I think I think the line they walk is almost every single one of those characters, while they might be clownish, right, they're all not quote normal people but they all feel like a real person yeah right it's never like a caricature where you go oh no one's actually like that i get what they're doing but no one's that crazy like every one of them you go like yeah no that feels like the real person it's a crazy person but yeah that's a person. no
0: you know the boyfriend who's hurt by his girlfriend therefore he goes and becomes on every buzzfeed article and that sort of thing and uses the name of the famous person there's that character like every kind of bizarre character the newscasters like all these characters are like nope I've seen them in real life like I know that character and again that's what makes this movie so documentary like is it's like oh these people are so lived in and more real than a lot of people in a Marvel movie or a lot of people in I don't know whichever horror movie or drama or whatever else it's like nope every single one of these characters I've met or interacted with
1: And I feel like that's why it almost it's more terrifying or feels kind of hopeless is it doesn't feel like I've said before, it doesn't feel elevated. It feels like these people in in power, whether they be in the administration or on the news program or whatever, like it feels like, no, this is I've seen these people like these are people I feel like are in power. And that's terrifying.
0: Okay, so here's our final category, Andrew what is this movie trying to say uh, <laughs> overall? You, you may have said it earlier, but if, if you could like distill it all of like, oh, man. this is the main thing this movie's trying to say, what's your kind of final closing argument of what it's trying to say?
1: I mean, what is this movie not trying to say? That would take less time. Um, the thing that amazes me about this movie is the number of things that it effectively says, either outright or subtly. The things that it's satirizing, the things that, that it's tackling. I mean, it has to be... A half dozen, do a dozen things. It tackles chauvinism with Leo taking the credit for Kate Bioski's discovery and everyone thinking yep. she's the crazy woman while he's the handsome scientist. It tackles climate change. Yep. It tackles money in politics. It tackles big personalities in politics that aren't really probably capable of leadership. It tackles social media, both with the big business angle as well as how it's moving society in the wrong direction. It tackles celebrities. It tackles the Binaryness of politics and the binary nature of society like the list goes on and on the things that it's, it's satirizing so just that the smorgasbord of things that it's saying is overwhelming and stunning and the fact that it holds up and doesn't feel like a TED talk is crazy to me um, but I think it's core if you could boil it all away and say what is the heart of this movie I think it's about Human connection and how human connection is the only antidote we have to the absurdity in our society. And not fake connection, not social media connection, not the actual who is around you, who is in the room with you, who can you stop and connect with?
0: Yeah, when we talked about most meaningful scene, the real answer to that is there's this final scene where they're all sitting down together and they're eating a meal. And some of these are friends, some of them are strangers, some of them are family members. But they're just having these really human connection and they're talking about simple things like I prefer store bought baked goods versus fresh made baked goods. Right. They're not having these overly like philosophical conversations. Yeah. But they're just sitting around a table connecting with each other and the juxtaposition of the world blowing around literally around them. And they're just kind of looking each other in the eye and having real conversations. I do think that's the meaning of the movie. Totally. I do think that's the antidote timothy chalamet gives this prayer um during at the table and we didn't really talk about his character much but i appreciated how religion in this movie wasn't even satirized it was really like no this is maybe looking at god is one of the th- only things that'll help us make sense of the world right now because we don't know what else is happening and he gives this beautiful prayer and then they just sit around the table and they just talk and it's like sometimes that's all you can do is be kind to the people right in front of you because if yeah. you're just trying to start communicating with the noise, the outside world. Like there's this scene earlier on where Leo's sitting down on his computer and he's like retorting to his, you know, someone else on a message board and twenty five thousand followers are waiting for him to say something. And his wife is like, Do you want to go for a walk? And he's like, No, I've got more busy important things to do. Yeah. And he finally learns that like, you know what? The most important thing to do is actually just talk to my wife who's right here, my cheer my kids on who are right here and love the people
1: who I'm nearby. Totally. Like it shocked me that the main characters of the movie weren't watching the final mission, whether they believed in it or not. It felt like you've got skin in the game. Like, don't you want to know if this works? And the story choice to have all of the main characters completely ignore the mission, whether or not it works or not, they want it to work. But they it's almost like the sense of enlightenment of like, if it doesn't, I'm not going to spend my last moments on Earth looking out into the the world but not connecting with anybody i'm going to look at my world and i'm going to connect with people and leo's last line is before the world explodes he says something to the tune of like we really had so much yeah and then the world ends
0: (laughs) yeah And and i think that's right i think if there's one moral it's hey turn off everything and just look at the people who are around you and you know it's it's a simple moral and i think one that we'd all be like oh yeah that's true but when you go in the movie and the journey that this movie takes you on, I feel like it's a moral that's thoughtful and fresh and unique and earned in the world of this movie. Absolutely. OK, well, that is our podcast for Don't Whew. Look Up. Uh, about, I hope we did OK, that? Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I hope I, I, I hope that wasn't, um, you know, an hour worth of uh, too much depression and sadness. Uh, if it was,
0: I hope you were depressed and sad with us. And maybe you felt a little bit of what we felt was relief or at least company. Misery loves company. And so we're glad that you uh, joined us for our misery in this episode.
1: Absolutely. We'll do
0: something happier next time. Uh, Thank you for listening. As always, you can like the show. You can subscribe to the show and be looking for the next episode of The Meaning of the Movie.